0: to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional, and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Carolyn Marshall to discuss living labs. Carolyn grew up in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, and did her undergrad at Acadia University in biology and insect herbivory. She completed her master's at UBC in Vancouver, studying soil microbiology in northern grassland ecosystems in the Yukon. After moving back to Nova Scotia and working as a research associate, she completed her PhD at Dalhousie University, looking at no-till green manure management and soil health and organic grain rotations. Carolyn then worked as a researcher at the Atlantic Soil Health Lab, working to develop database of soil health of the Atlantic region. She now works at the Nova Scotia Federation of Agriculture as the environment and climate change manager. Welcome, Carolyn. So Carolyn, let's start off with a a little bit of a basic question. Tell us a little bit about your role as the environment and climate change manager with the Nova Scotia Federation of Agriculture.
1: Sure, so I have an overseer type role for any of their programs or projects or initiatives that are related to the environment and climate change. So that includes the existing environmental farm plan, program, uh, our Species at Risk program, and then the upcoming Living Labs program, which hasn't started yet, uh, along with any other expertise requirements on climate change things. So questions any of our members might have about greenhouse gas emissions or soil carbon or those kind of things, sort of general climate and environment knowledge.
0: So like most roles with the federation, it sounds like it's a fairly broad one, uh, very much program and producer facing. Interesting that you've brought up the environmental farm plan. And uh, we talked with some of those folks, I, I think on a previous podcast and talked a lot about the benefits of just staying on top of environmental practices as farmers. Before we get too much into the Living Lab stuff that we're going to talk about, can you talk a little bit about the role of you and the EFP coordinators in that messaging to farmers about current provincial or national policy related to environmental on-farm management?
1: Sure. So right now the environmental farm plan in Nova Scotia and also nationally is sort of looking at transitioning a bit more in the direction of climate change and environment. So it's traditionally been mostly focused on water quality and it's expanded since its beginnings. You now the new policy framework is coming out and, um, we're doing a bit of a review on our program to see you know, how can we keep the environmental farm plan relevant so that producers are getting value from it. And a lot of that incorporation of more environmental type questions and modules is sort of where we're looking at. So right now they don't really advise farmers on ways they could reduce their greenhouse gas emissions or increase their fuel usage or increase their soil carbon. So We're looking at potentially adding those types of questions into the EFP and those types of recommendations, because we really want it to stay a relevant tool that is going to help farmers be environmentally sustainable in all kinds, all of the ways that they could be stewards of the environment.
0: Excellent. So let's get a little bit more into the Living Labs program. So for those of our listeners who don't follow agricultural policy that closely, there are a couple of bigger projects or programs that are kind of being launched concurrently, but not necessarily together a little bit. The first one is the OFCAF, the On-Farm Climate Action Fund, uh, and then Living Labs. Can you maybe just, maybe we'll start by differentiating between the primary goals between those two programs, if you can?
1: Sure. So the OFCAF program, the On-Farm Climate Action Fund, is a fund pool to fund producers directly to adopt practices around rotational grazing, nutrient management and cover crop use, as well as as training programs. And that's sort of a direct compensation. So if you want to start using cover crops, um, this fund can help cover some of the costs of that initial implementation of that environmental practice. And it really complements the living lab program, which is main goals are reducing greenhouse gas emissions and increasing carbon sequestration, but it's more of a, an on-farm research model. So that's kind of what a, a living lab is. It's research, but it's done in a really realistic setting. So a lot of times research is done on very small plots uh, in a very controlled environments, And that's for a good reason. You need to control the different variables so you can pinpoint what's really having the effect to better, better understand the system. But those conditions don't always mimic what you would see in an actual field. So you better understand the system, but not necessarily how it's going to work in a real life situation. And also how it might change when you, you scale it up. Um, so all of the living lab research is done on working farms with farmers to make sure that it's really applicable on in a real life, life situation. So it's sort of taking a different view. And there's already been, so the past, I think there's been two years completed of living labs in Manitoba, Ontario, PEI, and Quebec, I think is the fourth one. And so that was sort of a pilot project the government was really happy with how that rolled out. So now they're rolling it out to all the other provinces. So each province will have a living lab uh, and they're all focused on those same goals. How can we increase carbon sequestration? How can we decrease greenhouse gas emissions?
0: So one of the things that I appreciate about this process so far, and I was very fortunate to be part of the, the steering committee early on, is the fact that it is very much solutions based and very much real life based. And the work that you and your team and the Federation did of bringing those producers to the table and saying, "Okay, what are your challenges and what are some of the potential solutions? Is that a similar system that, you know, that's been followed across other provinces or was that fairly unique here in Nova Scotia?
1: Um, I'm not familiar with all of the provinces, especially the ones further west. Um, We've been in communication with the other Atlantic teams, and we all had sort of a similar process of engaging the farming community, farmers directly, commodity organizations, other agricultural organizations, to really make sure that what we're going to look at is going to be relevant, and it's going to address real problems that they have, One of the ways that this living lab program is a little bit different than a standard research program is we're not necessarily looking to develop new best management practices you know we're not trying to develop brand new cover crops we know that cover crops can help combat climate change uh, and adaptation to climate change but not everybody is using them so it's about innovation in ways that you can increase that adoption So if a farmer is not using a cover crop, we want to find out why they're not using a cover crop and what can we do to help overcome whatever barrier they're facing. If they're concerned about economics, if they don't feel they have enough knowledge to incorporate a cover crop into their rotation. So the adoption part is really what's driving the program. So we really need to connect with the farming community so that we understand, you know, what is actually preventing people from adopting these practices and what can we do to help them get over the other side of that barrier?
0: One of the things we talked about early on, particularly related to ruminants and livestock, was how well that sector or that industry can really fit into the two primary goals of increasing carbon sequestration or reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, I think the livestock folks would argue, debate. That they're already doing a really good job on the carbon sequestration bit uh, with perennial forages uh, and some of their cropping, especially on the beef cattle side. You know, especially a lot of those farms would have things like woodlots and other kind of carbon sequestering activities on their farm. And really, a lot of the work we've done regionally, if not nationally, is around the reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So things around feed efficiency, feed additives, and Can you talk a little bit about how, before we talk about the the four specific projects, how those two are weighed separately or together in developing the overall projects that we'll be going through over the next few years?
1: Right, so the number one objective is uh, soil carbon sequestration. So that had to be the focus of all of our little projects that we uh, incorporated into our proposal. And you're right, the livestock industry does do a pretty good job of this. Uh, Pastures have really high rates of carbon sequestration in Nova Scotia compared to other types of cropping, which is really great. And then the greenhouse gas is the sort of the second objective. So we wanted to focus on uh, how to how to maximize that and how to, I mean, we can bring some of that carbon sequestration that the livestock industry is so good at into other types of cropping. Um, to make the difference that way.
0: Here are upcoming events brought to you by Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers. Our students learn to solve real-world problems in a friendly, hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study. Dal researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters or designing smarter christmas trees. Dal agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more, visit dal.ca/agriculture. Upcoming Atlantic Stockyards feeder sale dates will occur on a regular basis once a month through the summer, with the next one on June 16th, starting at 10 a.m. Please check AtlanticStockyards.com for the full schedule and booking information. The Nova Scotia Cattle Producers have two programs available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program and the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many programs available in Nova Scotia in 2022, such as the Cattle and Sheep Industry Development Program and Wildlife Mitigation Program. For a complete list of programs, as well as applications and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. I think that leads us really nicely into the the four identified projects uh, that the Federation will be looking at. So let's talk about those individually and we'll start maybe with the one that I'm kind of partial to and probably is more focused on livestock than the other three and that's the land swap project can you talk a little bit about the overall goals of that project and what it might actually look like on the ground
1: yeah so this is a really interesting project Um, there were a few key producers who really championed this idea So I mentioned that pastures tend to have lots of carbon in their soil. They're very good at storing carbon because they're undisturbed. They have living roots pretty much all year round. um, And that really helps keep carbon in the soil. And if you compare that to something like horticulture production, the soil is really disturbed. There can be a lot of bare soil that's exposed. There can be long periods of time with nothing growing in the soil. So they tend to have quite low levels of soil carbon. And so the idea that these producers were championing is, uh, they called it the land swap, which I think is a great term. And it's bringing livestock into those fields. So a field that's currently in a horticulture rotation and turning it into a pasture temporarily and having animals graze that and then bringing it back into horticulture production. So, this would help add that carbon to the soil, create soil structure, build soil health. And we're hoping that that will last once it goes back into horticulture production. You know, once you start disturbing the soil, you're going to lose some of the carbon you've added, but hopefully not all of it. And this kind of system employed over time can start to build that soil back up again. So, what we're hoping to do is uh, have sort of a five-year rotation where it would be uh, well, for this uh, living lab project. So it's a five-year program. So the first year will be regular vegetable production. And then in years two, three, and four, it would become a grazed pasture. And then it would go back into horticultural production. So we can sort of measure those losses to see the impact of going back into horticulture. And if we've helped make the soil more resilient, And there's actually the Ontario Living Lab had a similar project where they were incorporating uh, grazed livestock in annual cropping rotations, but they were just doing it for one year. So we're hoping with this longer three year period, uh, we'll be able to add more carbon and hopefully stabilize some of that carbon so that uh, it can be captured for the long term. So it's about pairing. We need to find producers that wanna work together. So a horticulture producer and a livestock producer. So there's all kinds of things to consider. You know, they need to live nearby one another. Uh, We need to consider fencing, watering. There's all kinds of logistics to figure out. Um, But I think that's gonna be a really fun challenge hopefully at the end of this we will sort of have like a playbook that we can give to producers to be like if this is something you want to do here are the steps here's the type of agreements you need to have in place you know determining the responsibilities of the different producers in the system so i think it has a lot of potential i also feel like it's kind of nova scotia atlantic canada unique because we have a really mixed agricultural system here. So there are some places in Canada where cropping systems are sort of segregated from each other, but where Nova Scotia has a really diverse agricultural system on not a huge land base, we have a lot of different cropping systems side by side. And I think it's a unique Nova Scotia situation that we should take advantage of.
0: So introducing livestock into cropping rotations isn't really that uncommon. Um, I think we've seen our, our PEI neighbor friends Historically, I've had a fairly strong cattle industry because of the potato industry uh, for two reasons, the manure going on to the fields and the crops coming off for animal feeds and for bedding. Part of that is all soil health. Can you explain how soil overall soil health and productivity will be taken into account in this project in
1: particular? we're expecting to see you know, some gains in that. So like I said, you'll be adding soil carbon, but that's just one part of it. So those, those roots that are present, uh, the root exudates that will come out of the living plant material, uh, the manure and everything that will be added from the livestock raising will help build the soil carbon, but it will also help build soil structure. So that will make the soil less resilient to erosion once it does become disturbed again, which can be a big problem in Nova Scotia where we have uh, wet springs and a lot of horticulture fields tend to be bare before your crop starts growing in the spring, so it can lead to a lot of erosion. So we're hoping to address that issue. We're gonna look at you know, aggregate stability, different types of carbon that can benefit the microorganisms living in the soil, uh, while also keeping track of uh, negative soil organisms. So we don't want our livestock segment of the rotation to introduce any harmful pests that might impact future vegetable rotations. So we'll be monitoring that as well, which is part of soil health, and then just the general productivity of the system. So how much plant material is being grown? How are the animals growing? Uh, How's the health of the animals? So the overall system health as well.
0: So just a a couple more questions with this project specifically, and, and it's more around the greenhouse gas side of it, I guess. And the focus on pasture management and not necessarily forage and stored feed. Um, I think there's definitely a benefit there, right, by not running tractors and equipment and fossil fuel and, and trucking that feed to the home site. And then the second part of that whole thing is around the use of legumes in some of those systems as nitrogen fixers and what impact that will have on overall nitrogen requirements and how it gets used by the the subsequent horticultural crops. Any comments on those two things?
1: Yeah, so that's something that's a theme across some, a, a few of our living lab projects is using legumes to help fix nitrogen. So like you mentioned, these systems won't need as much tractor traffic uh, in the years that they're in pasture, which will help reduce greenhouse gas through fuel emissions. Um, but then also we're hoping that that nitrogen will carry over, so that the following horticulture crops won't need as much nitrogen fertilizer, which is also a big source of greenhouse gases, both at the point of production of the fertilizer, and then also the effects of that fertilizer once it's put on the field. Um, So we're hoping that'll be sort of a multi-pronged approach to reducing those emissions through uh, reduced machinery use and also reduced fertilizer use.
0: So switching gears a little bit, can we touch a little bit on just each one of the other projects as well? Um, so I've noted that there are four projects here. Um, maybe we'll start with, you said cover crops are obviously a big portion or, or primary focus, especially here in Nova Scotia. It looks like um, maybe three or four of the projects all focus around some sort of cover cropping. Um, do you wanna talk about the, the first two that are actually fairly closely linked in using cover crops in either annual or perennial systems?
1: Yeah, cover crops, when we had our initial engagement sessions with the farming community, that was a big one that people see as being a solution toward these issues around, around climate change and uh, adaptability. So we also ran a survey uh, at the beginning of our proposal preparation that looked at different management practices and why whether farmers were adopting them and why they might not be adopting them. So some of the issues that came up around cover cropping were knowledge of how to incorporate it in different rotations, because there are a lot of questions that you have to answer when you decide to put a cover crop in because you have to pick which cover crop you have to pick when it's gonna be planted in your rotation. Then you have to pick how it's gonna be terminated. And that can be the time that it's terminated and also the way that it's terminated. So there's many questions. Um, So we're hoping to be able to address some of those in this project to sort of get over that knowledge barrier where people just aren't sure the best way to incorporate cover crops. So we're working with Perennia on this one to analyze an annual cropping system. So there's a mix of horticulture and field crop rotations. They're looking at coming in after winter wheat and planting five different cover crops. Each cover crop will have two termination methods. So we're looking at 10 different combinations. So that will really help us narrow down like which of these cover crops is gonna work? What are the benefits? What's the best timing? To really help answer some of those questions. And the fact that it's going to be on working farms, it's a great opportunity to set this up as field days so farmers can come and see it and talk to the producer about what they're seeing as this occurs on their field. So that's happening uh, in annual systems. And then in perennial systems, we're working with AAFC. They're focusing on orchards and vineyards and how to manage the laneways in uh, established vineyards. So what can be grown in the laneways that's not currently being grown that can help improve the soil through sequestering carbon, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then in orchards, they're looking at pre-establishment. So before the orchard goes in, what kind of cover crop treatments can go on that field to prepare it for the orchard, and to set it up for healthy soil throughout the life of that orchard. So those are the two projects that are looking mostly at cover crops and really emphasizing that adoption method. So what can we do in those projects that can entice producers to give it a try on their field? And one of the aspects of that is also the economics that came up a lot in our survey people were unsure whether it's worth it because there is a cost you have to buy the seed for the cover crops if you're doing it in a rotation maybe you're not growing uh, a crop that you would normally grow in order to fit a cover crop in so what is that going to look like economically so that is also a part of our are going to be a part of the living lab project is running this economic analysis to sort of look at here's all the costs to putting this cover crop in, but you know, how does that compare to the type of benefits you're going to get? So if you're building soil carbon, maybe you need less fertilizer. um, So that's gonna reduce that cost. So we're working with some economists at Acadia University to help us analyze what's the actual cost of these practices versus the benefit.
0: Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited.
1: Atlantic Stockyards Limited
0: has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions
1: occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits, and poultry all featured. Additional information, such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates, and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com.
0: For the weekend of June third, twenty twenty-two, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was two dollars and fifty cents per kilogram, up seven point six cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was up seven point six cents from last week to two forty-one per kilogram. And in the Quebec market, base price was two o six per kilogram, up four point four cents from last week. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was two dollars and ninety-eight cents on the rail. And in Ontario, live steer sold for $1.82, moving up six cents from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was $3.06, up four cents from last week. Call Cattle Atlantic Stockyard sold for $1. four, down three cents from last week, while rail price Atlantic Beef Products was flat at $1.95. Calls in Ontario averaged a dollar, up one cent from the prior week, and 94 cents in Quebec, moving down one cent. Good Dairy Bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $86, up $61. And Good Dairy Beef Bob calves averaged $303, up $48 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up $0.23 cents to a price of $2.17 per pound. And calves in Quebec were $2.34, an increase of $0.42 cents per pound. Base price at Northumberland remains at $15 for lamb and $6.50 per kilogram for mutton. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $3.12 per pound at 57 pounds, ranging from 255 to 360. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs average 313 per pound at 59 pounds, ranging from 255 to 405. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they average 331 per pound at 69 pounds, ranging from 290 to 370. In Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs average 303 Per pound at 73 pounds, ranging from 260 to 362 and a half. In Ontario, use averaged $1.51 at 154 pounds, ranging from 60 cents to $3.20. Make sure you check your association websites for additional pricing information. So, one of the other projects, Carolyn, is actually kind of interesting and it brings me back to my summer student days of 2005 when I worked with the Federation and they were doing a riparian zone assessment project with CARP, uh, where they were actually going out and mapping some of that watershed down in in Annapolis County. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, riparian zone and shelter belt project with CARP?
1: Yeah, so we partnered with them because they have a ton of experience uh, in these riparian zones. We weren't sure how they would feel about the shelter belt, but they're, they're looking to expand and try different things, which I think is great. And they're related. Uh, a shelter belt is essentially a riparian zone, but it's not along the water. Um, so it has other purposes like protecting fields from wind erosion. It can help with snow movement. Uh, we're focusing the shelter belts in wild blueberry production because we're hoping it will help those essential functions like pollinator services. And this one, it's almost like a low hanging fruit uh, when it comes to carbon sequestration, because not only are those plants, which are more or less permanent, having their roots uh, in the soil, they are also growing woody biomass, which is also storing carbon. So you're storing carbon not just below ground, but also above ground. So it can really amp up the amount of carbon you can sequester. There is always the issue of, you know, you're taking some land out of production to put these zones in, but we're hoping that, you know, especially through our uh, economic analysis, we can kind of show that there are plenty of other benefits. So we're going to be measuring pollinator services. We're going to be measuring insect diversity. There's a really interesting project that I was really excited when it was brought forward to me because I love mosses. I think they're really beautiful and interesting, and there is a researcher at the Nova Scotia Natural History Museum who has found that agricultural lands that border water, for some reason, are exceptionally high in diversity of mosses and lichens, Uh, and they can have some really unique species present in those zones. So we're partnering with him on this project, Uh, So he's going to have students coming in to measure the diversity of those mosses and lichens, which are not directly beneficial to agriculture, but they're often seen as sort of an environmental indicator species. So if your environment in general is healthy, then you're going to find more of these types of organisms growing. And then it's just that general biodiversity aspect in general uh, which can be sort of a tricky one to convey the benefit of, you know, just having biodiversity, but we're hearing more and more about species loss and a lot of that can be due to ha- habitat loss. So these riparian zones can sort of be like a small way to help overcome that. And how species that uh, you're going to get some beneficial species like pollinators, but then just that general biodiversity, it just makes the environment nicer for everybody. And that aesthetic thing is a real function that agricultural ecosystems can provide. They can be very aesthetically beautiful and just sort of improve the mental health um, and just improve our our community in general. So I think that's a really neat way to approach it. And I'm excited to have that sort of sub-project as part of this. Yeah, participating
0: in a couple of those producer sessions, it was really interesting to hear the excitement of some of those producers that even though they might be talking about increasing carbon sequestration reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they actually got just as, if not more, excited about things like soil health, biodiversity. You know, the pollinator one is big. Other kind of land uh, management practices, partnering within the community. It was really interesting to hear that, that, it, you know, although we're kind of looking to solve two issues, we're actually solving a lot of the other issues that we talk about as well.
1: Yeah. And I think this can also have a big public trust aspect to it. If the public sees us taking care of those types of environments and we can convey that the farming community cares about them too, they want that diversity as well. Um, I think that can go a long way on the public trust front.
0: So it sounds like these projects, although at the the high level, seem fairly basic. There's a lot of physical science, a lot of social science a lot of business economics that roll into it. So how have you built those research teams or those project teams to be able to address each side of that decision-making process within the project?
1: Yes, we're approaching it from many different angles. We've got several scientists from different universities and different organizations that are on board to ask different questions about these systems. And then I mentioned we're working with Uh, some economists at Acadia and there's also some uh, social scientists there that are going to help us uh, look further at these barriers and creating tools to help us uh, work with farmers to overcome those barriers. The survey I mentioned was done before the project to get an idea of you know where are the barriers, what are the main barriers, how do people feel about climate change in general, so that's going to be a tool we're going to reuse to sort of benchmark the project. So there's, I think, four or five different social scientists and economic people on the team. And a lot of the organizations we're working with bring real-life experience with farmers. Perennia works one-on-one with farmers. Uh, we're working with the Clean Annapolis River Project that's been working uh, in agricultural fields for a while. So there's lots of expertise on our team that can approach these problems from different, different ways. So there's going to be lots of collaboration, frequent meetings and discussions and and analysis of how we're doing to constantly improve. We want to have like real-time feedback. You know, we tried to do this on the field and the the farmer didn't like it for X, Y, and Z. So how can we change it? Um, So it's not like you set a project up and then it's set in stone and you have to stick with it for the five years of the program. If it's not working, we need to adapt it as quickly as possible to figure out how it can best serve those needs. So it's gonna be constantly evolving, which uh, I think is really exciting. And I think it uh, gives the Living Lab a lot of potential.
0: I think a lot of us, mostly me, would argue that a lot of this thought is not new. A lot of it is just adopting, accepting, implementing practices that we're already fairly familiar about. So what makes the Living Labs different than the regular extension work done by folks through the department and the Federation and Perennia?
1: I think it has a lot of weight. It's been really received well by the farming community. This program announcement, we've had a lot of support and engagement from the farming community and different groups uh, through the community. So agriculture groups, but also general community groups are interested in participating. And there's just that, like I mentioned, it's really collaborative. So there's lots of different voices at the table. Uh, there's going to be lots of different ideas. And I really think that the, this sort of living lab innovation model has a lot of potential. This on farm work coupled with strong extension outreach uh, with the constantly evolving process together has the potential to have a big impact. Uh, We're hoping to be able to reach a lot of farmers through the outreach programs, you know, getting them to the field days, you know, promoting this at different events. Uh, We're going to be all over the place talking about the Living Lab. So you'll see, you'll see me and my team everywhere.
0: Excellent. And I think that's the key, right? Farmers particularly like going out and seeing what other farmers are doing, see how it could work for them, how it might not work for them, how some small changes could make it work. And I think that's kind of will be the key to the success of this entire program is being able to do those demonstrations, being able to archive it, getting some of the folks uh, like Richard and Dean who are involved in the land swap, who are very influential within their own circles to speak positively and engage their fellow producers outside of, you know, a stuffy workshop held at the fire hall. I think that'll be really key. And, And it's one of the things that I'm really excited to see that it's not just extension on paper, that it's extension out in the field.
1: Yeah, and it's great timing. I mean, hopefully, knock on wood, as COVID seems to be loosening up, the PEI living lab that ran for the past two years had to really adapt quickly on their feet uh, when they couldn't do extension events for part of their program because of COVID restrictions. So, you know, going into the summer, things look good. they can always change but I think the timing is good because people are, are hungry to get back in person. They want those events to start up again. Hopefully we'll have, we'll have good uptake uh, of those events and, and we can make them you know, interesting and relevant and, and engaging for the farmers.
0: What, one of the other things that maybe we can just touch on briefly is, as I mentioned early on, there, there are a lot of climate things all kind of happening at the same time that I think are driven very much by national policy. Uh, I think that's a very positive thing. I know we've participated in the climate adaptation leadership project through cattle and, and sheep and all kind of with a very similar focus. How do we then pair all of those things together so that we're not working in silos to bring it forward to producers?
1: I think that's been an issue in the past. I know I've often you know, met somebody at a local conference or meeting and we ended up talking, we realized we're both working on very similar things that we had never met before. Like I said, there's so much collaboration on this project and we've really tried to get a lot of different groups represented. If they're not directly involved in some of the projects, you know, we're we're talking to them about uh, helping us guide the project and making sure that their members' uh, needs are being met. So I think that's going to help that we've we've already made some of these connections with these different groups uh, and we're going to try and incorporate that into our, our KTT plan for instance uh, one of our projects is looking at establishing riparian zones and the provincial government has a program to help fund riparian zone uh, establishments so we can promote that program in our KTT so we can link those, uh, together in, in people's minds. And that should not only help, you know, us connect across programs, but help raise awareness and help uptake as well. When we can say like, this is an important BMP, and it's also linked to a funding opportunity. Uh, and the same thing with offCAF. So there's a lot of funding opportunities in offCAF that link really well with the Living Lab project.
0: Excellent. Well, I think I've taken much, enough of your time today, Carolyn. If folks want to learn more about your section of the Federation or about the Living Labs specifically, uh, where do they go or how do they reach out?
1: Yep, so they can contact me at cmarshall at nsfa-fane.ca. So you can send me an email. Uh, You can keep an eye on the Federation's website and sign up for the e-news. So whenever we have any updates about any events we have going on, It'll be present there. You can go to the events section of the Federation's website. And uh, once the Living Lab project gets going, we should have our own webpage on the Federation's site as well. So keep an eye open for that. We'll be on social media as well.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time and our listeners. I'm sure we're going to uh, engage with you, especially on sharing some of that uh, communication uh, and information with our producers as much as we can. Uh, So we appreciate your time and thanks for being with us.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I had a good time talking about it.
0: Don't want to miss any future episodes. Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of ArchesAudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.